0: Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And today we're talking all about placemaking. And so, placemaking is this idea that communities should have a shared sense of ownership to the places and spaces around them. Coming from Detroit, I think a lot about Detroit's campus marshes. And what used to just be more of an open space is now a shared beach or it's a place to go ice skating. And there's just different uses for the space around them. And one of the fundamental understandings that we have around placemaking is that everyone has the same opportunity to create place and space. This week, we are talking to Monica Gutierrez, who's gonna share some of her experience in South Phoenix when it comes to engaging community, what it means to share power, and most important, what is equitable placemaking? So, Monica, please introduce yourself to the listeners. So glad to have you on the show.
1: Yes. Hi, James. I want to call you JB... it's JB3 since we know each other on Twitter. <laughs> um, but I'm humbled by the invitation to share my story with your audience. Um, thank you so much. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Monica Gutierrez, and um, I'm speaking to you from the ancestral homelands of the Akamal Autumn the Pee and Tohono O'odham peoples Um, but beyond a land recognition I just would like to acknowledge and lift up the southern tribes in Arizona here who are fighting the desecration of their sacred land resources and water um, by the building of the border wall and those tribes include the Tohono O'odham the Pascua Yaqui and our tribal relatives in Mexico
0: do you so, mind mentioning just why that's important? Because yeah. you know, a lot of folks don't understand the value and the essence that's tied to acknowledging land and acknowledging the tribes that come from those lands.
1: Yeah, I it, you know it's um, it, it's interesting because some folks, um, some Native folks that I know locally are like, no, we know where we're from, we don't need a land acknowledgement. Um, but then I hear on the flip side, acknowledge the land, and when we think about placemaking we have to acknowledge the, colon, the, 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 the colonization that has taken place in the land we're studying as researchers or where you might be doing your work with as a clinician, right? I think it helps to answer a lot of the ills that we're finding in our communities and that it's not community-based, so to say, but it's historically-based trauma that we're in fact dealing with. And so the second part to that I always say is, don't just acknowledge the land. Like if I'm sending a message, like you're in uh, Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in Arizona, and I want to be able to share with you what's happening in Arizona. I don't want to just acknowledge it. There are struggles really happening. I mean, we're not even talking about the Navajo Nation, you know, suing the federal government because they don't have early voting or they have to go 60 miles off of the reservation to vote. Um, we're, and Pascua Yaqui just filed a lawsuit too so we're not even talking about that piece you know um but again when we think of placemaking and and um the inequalities the colonialism that's the settler colonialism that's taken place that's for me that's why this is important
0: so tell us a little bit about your educational background i mean what brings you to this point um educationally
1: yeah um i always like to like That question about where are you from, your educational background, for me, it's kind of like a mishmash of things. Um, And that's the way I feel when people say, well, where are you from? I was born near the California-Mexico border. um, And folks who are forced to constantly balance like border life um, always say, no soy de aquí, ni soy de allá. I'm not from here and I'm not from there. (laughs) Um, So you aren't Mexican enough because you weren't born In Mexico, you were born on the U.S. side, and mind you, I was born like, what, 20 minutes from the border. (laughs) Um, But I'm not American enough because I have deep roots in Mexico, right? So I always say I'm a border kid at heart, and that dual existence for me, being on the U.S. and Mexico border is where I, I feel like I get my passion and drive. But I do come from a family of immigrants, which is why my research is like rooted in displacement and placemaking. Um, my, fi- my family migrated, my immediate family migrated to the Central Valley in California. Um, and That's where I spent a lot of my time growing up, so to say. So when we think about my educational background, like we have this formal way of thinking of our education, and then this um, institutional way of thinking of the education. And for me, I don't know, I feel, I like my my, the street knowledge I gain <laughs> better than institutional one definitely informs the other. So
0: I, I, I hear that. Um, in many ways, I feel like I rely less on the book smarts of things. Like it's helpful to get indoors, but to be able to navigate those spaces is actually really the street smarts.
1: So if we think of the institutional piece, um, I, uh, af- I left home um, and moved to the Bay Area where I studied um, La Raza studies and industrial design at San Francisco State University. Now, like, you know, when you go through these things, like a major, you pick it in undergrad, you're like, I need to get out, I just need something. And then I realized like now as I'm moving through the process and living life more than in my undergrad, I realized (laughs) um, La Raza studies really taught me how to critically examine injustices in specifically the Latina, Latino community, right? Um, and then people are always like question mark when I say industrial design. But it gave me the lens to see how the injustices are manifested through the built environment. And even if the things we think about are made, that's also comes with injustices, like the things we we materially handle on a daily basis. Um, so I am so thankful for those having that that foundation.
0: So tell us a little bit about what you're doing currently. I know there's a certain fellowship that you're involved with, and I'm secretly jealous, but I like watching from the side.
1: Um, So the other piece of of what I do is my involvement with the Health Policy Research Scholars Program that you mentioned. It's through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, And the program brings together scholars who are considered underrepresented in their field and from different disciplines um, across the U.S. Um, I honestly can't say enough good things about this program, Um, and to have been chosen to share the space with so many, like, brilliant scholars is beyond what I ever imagined my, like, educational experience to be. Um, I never even thought about going this far, to be honest with you, (laughs) and I think that's true for many of us. Um, I mean, before the fellowship, I was funding my doctoral program on a shoestring budget, because I didn't know any better, right? I just knew I needed to get this degree um and that's how I made it through academia like even in my undergrad just putting things together maybe a couple loans here a side hustle here (laughs) and you know when I first started the doctoral program uh, my whole cohort mates they were um, buying all their textbooks and I'd be borrowing them from the school or public library or I'd be down in the basement um, for the textbook reserve that the faculty member puts on reserve and you can borrow it for two hours. So there I was like hustling, trying to get it done. Um, and they were paying for a stats tutor. I was going to the library, um, working with, a—I think it was some graduate guy, um, in engineering. So needless to say, he didn't even speak the same mathematical language as social workers. Right. So then at some point I thought to myself, oh my God, I've hustled as much as I can in this academic game, game over Monica, like you just call it call it already, right? And um, then this fellowship hit. And I just, you know, when you just throw a Hail Mary, and you're like, close your eyes, and you just do something, and you just don't even think twice about it. Um, But luckily, I made it through the process and was, um, was asked to be a part of the program. And it's funny, because this is how bad imposter syndrome is for us. Like, I got the email saying, you're accepted into the program. And I literally responded and was like, yeah, you know, I don't think you sent this to the right person, but I want to let you know so you can send it to the right person and let them know. Um, But anyways, I got an email back a couple of days later and they're like, no, we got the right person. You are in, you know, accept it. So, but it's been beyond my wildest dreams, quite honestly.
0: I'm so glad they were able to affirm that you were the right person. Because you could have very well sent that email and never looked back, right? It was just like, this wasn't for me. I'm so sorry. Going about your day back to the basement to the textbook's reserves, right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Let's talk about placemaking. Do you mind defining it for folks who are not really engaged in that space?
1: Yeah. um, I always try not to be too pithy about it. Um, (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So it's, it's kind of like rooted in the understanding of the, the politics around placemaking. And my work focuses on um, people in the community in South Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and South Phoenix is a place just like a lot of communities across the US, under-resourced, governmental policies have led it to be, um, have no political representation, so to say, no political power, the desecrated land, creating, dumping sites, literally the, dumping ground for the city is in South Phoenix, like where we go dump all our garbage all around. so so my my research focus is on light rail expansion that the city wants to um, place in the heart of this neighborhood. Um, and the neighborhood wants infrastructure. They want um, transportation dollars to be spent on you know potholes, abandoned buildings, teacher retention, all these other things beyond, this light rail. Um, and as people, as I talk to people and move around the community, people say, call it this big silver clunk of metal r- going right through our, our the heart of our neighborhood. Um, so there's been several city council meetings. Anyways, long story short, it's getting done. Like physically right now, we can see metal barriers going up to indicate that this area can no longer be utilized because it's set for the light rail. So that's really what what my dissertation, so to say, is looking at, but I selfishly have been really delving into the literature. (laughs) I I feel super privileged to even say that, honestly, but I've been looking beyond surface power um, and the relationships in South Phoenix. So my work focuses on um, power as a social structure that is distributed amongst the privileged and wealthiest groups, something we already know, right? But how do federal, state, and local governmental policies, like how do they impose their power on low-income communities of color through laws and legislation? I find that the main objective of legislation and legal decisions historically (laughs) um, and the structure of law, let's just call it what it is, is to define what legitimate property is. Um, And I mean like physical property and material property. Um, And I can't help but think lately about the way government has viewed humans as property, Um, thinking back as far as, you know, how uh, dating back to black and indigenous bodies being captured and enslaved, first and foremost, right? But then if we think about the social welfare system, I mean, we, uh, we call children who come into the system wards of the state. We talk to uh, we talk about people um justice, justice involved individuals as property of the state and federal government until they're deemed um deserving of release um, and we know that brown and black folks are overrepresented in both these systems, child welfare and criminal justice right so this is not by accident that we're calling them property. words have meaning and they matter right and so right now, I'm really looking into that that piece because we can't just say the problem is this light rail. No, there's a reason why people don't trust the government right now and don't trust people making decisions for them instead of with them, right?
0: You brought up so many things that I wanna like expand upon, especially when you mentioned like power and politics, like they go hand in hand. in the sense that we often, and I, and I work in government, like I work in state government, so I understand that mistrust. And we don't take the time to try To share power like it's it's just not even considered it's really a matter of you'll do what i say and there's a lot to be said about the power that exists within community and what is also we should mention is the fact that the power to do a thing is often removed from community like we realize that community has assets that they can be built upon but what we don't do is actually Give them the tools to leverage the assets that they have. And so talk to us a little bit more about the relationship between politics and placemaking, because it could easily sound like, oh, you know, politicians are making one decision that impacts one small community. But like you have mentioned, it's really bigger than that. And there's a long historical context that exists with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, to get to a current political decision, we have to go, again, far back in history. I mean, I know a lot of people right now are talking about gentrification, but that's not the problem here. We have to talk about, you know, redlining, the mapping that allowed Phoenix, South Phoenix to be a dumping, literally a dumping site. And prior to that, I mean, we have to think about the historical implications for this. And so, like you said, spot on, politics create the place. that that, that's what it boils down to and um, those in political power they get to dictate what our neighborhoods look like with or without our consent it doesn't matter and given the capitalistic economic infrastructure at the core of our economy like the power allotted to cities and states and communities is is insane i mean it's crazy, but this is the economy and this is the, the, the structure, the governmental structure that we're trying to work underneath, right? Um, and so they get to say that investments, in air quotes, <laughs> enhanced neighborhoods or only fat, but it only really fast tracks urban renewal at the effects of displacing longtime time residents. Um, and these residents um, have little to no political power like we were previously talking about. They've endured decades of declining infrastructure Um, And they fear these enhancements. And I think it's a real fear. Um, And if we look deeper, we see that the development and practice of mobility is ultimately defined by power and policy. I've been thinking a lot about mobility as well. Like we think of social mobility, right? Asset-based, the wealth gap that we've been all talking about lately. Um, Not having the social capital to move out of a neighborhood even if you wanted to, you know? Then we think about the bodily or physical mobility, and I'm kind of still working through or thinking through this piece, but in, me, in, in my eyes, I see it as like um, this like a perceived ability to move within a space. I like to think I can do whatever I want in my space, but I really can't. Like um, it's dictated by signs and structures. Placement of transit stops is gonna really dictate my ability to physically be mobile as well. You know, we see wayfinding, like no cruising, no loitering, one-way streets, those kinds of things. Um, Obviously, location of highways and bridges is a major piece. Um, Sundown towns that still exist. Residential parking permits is another one. Um, Pavement marking. So anyways, this idea of bodily mobility um, is really something I've been thinking a lot about um, and how we perceive the ability to move within, you know, our neighborhoods where we choose to to live or are forced to live, yeah.
0: You know, it sounds like a very similar conversation as to like my experience going home and home for me is Detroit. You know, I would go home, I would go downtown and the downtown that I remember as a child is very different than the downtown I see as an adult. You know, There's white people walking their dogs downtown. Like that's something I've never seen before there. You know, we've got the Quicken bus, uh, it's like a little subway type deal that goes through the city. I'm like, what is this? And when you start to see things you know, you talk about Cass Corridor, where there was like this large displaced homeless population. And now don't even know where they are. You know, I don't know their names, but I can still see faces like from my childhood and memories. It's like we made decisions to uproot people in their community. And when I talk about community, I often think about the fact that it's much more than just location, it's about your values, you know, it's about your affinities. It's the fact that I've created a social network of community people that I, I can talk to, my social supports are here. When you take people out of their community in that way, you know, you you create an even more inequitable system than what we had to begin with.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, as we look at Atlanta, you know, and I think it's their, the MTA transit system and how that all went down. I mean, it's just, it's happening all over. I do think that, you know, you make place wherever that is, right?
0: And so another thing I want to talk about, um, the social determinants of health, which is like, you know, the public health thing, everybody talks about it, but I really had to like break it down for family because what we ended up seeing is that there's downstream problems that exist because of the social determinants of health. Like we can tie it directly to health outcomes. Could you talk about that relationship when it comes to placemaking and how it impacts individual health?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I always like the upstream downstream parable. Um it's so critical, right? Um one of the things that um I've been thinking of beyond structural determin- or beyond um social determinants of health is structural determinants of health, which is very relatable to to this conversation as well. So one thing I I get a lot of pushback from folks. Um I want to say that I'm not against transit or progress, okay? <laughs> I'm not, um, but we have to work on shifting power. And the way we were talking earlier, you have to think about what does power mean and the differential that folks in South Phoenix experience and are portrayed as victims. Like, I don't want to do that. That's not my research or my conversations about my work. I never wanna make the community be seen as victims or lacking agency, like you said earlier, they hold innate power. They know what's good for them. They don't need (laughs) some folks coming in and telling them they need a light rail system when they're not asking for it. But I think that it's essential to acknowledge space and the visual and sensory shift that is altered or eliminated by urban revitalization, right? So we should think about the impact altered landscape has. Um, And because I focus on Latina and Latino residents in South Phoenix, what happens when local um, services are gone? So we think of barbershops. Yerberias, which are like holistic, you know, natural shops. uh, Yanterias, where you go get your tires. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Panaderias, where you go get your bread. Bars and restaurants, like those are all, they look different. They could still be there, but they look different. And um, I love this quote by Mark Davidson. He's in the School of Geography at Clark University and he says, communities and people can be displaced, that means unable to reconstruct place without spatial dislocation, just as much as they can with spatial dislocation. So this means that you can be in a space and still not feel like you belong. Um, And this is devoid of obviously being physically pushed out somewhere.
0: That makes me want to jump on like the whole inclusion, the idea of inclusion, right? Because just because you've invited me to the meeting, And now you've documented that I'm there, like you're being diverse, but you've actually never even mentioned the fact that I'm there. You know, you never asked, what do I think? You really just needed me to sign in because that's going to tie you to some grant dollars or, you know, it's a reflection of the research you're doing. And so I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that you always want to put community first, because I feel even in like the practitioner side of things, we think that we're doing A good service when in fact we're doing the opposite because we're not actually taking the time to engage community in a meaningful way or to really listen, you know, that as a social worker, we talk about active listening to really hear the solutions and the recommendations that they offer. I do this presentation where I look at the, there's a spectrum for public participation and it goes from this idea of inform, which is like the least amount of, um, engagement to sharing power and so sharing power to me are like you know two kids in the meadows frolicking like we're happy we're together we're moving forward progressing together and that's where you know it in a utopic society that's where we would all be but at minimum we should be consulting community hearing and taking notes to the things that they're saying and then i'm glad we talked about power because power would say Even if I work for the state health department and you're bringing me an issue about transportation, I have enough influence to go talk to somebody in transportation and say, hey, this is a problem that's come up in my space. Now this is a joint problem of ours to solve. And so as we start talking about solving, let's talk about the solutions that you see within placemaking. I mean, we could talk about some of the innovations, but really how do we reach equity in that?
1: That's a good, I would love to see that presentation. If you ever have do that and are live streaming, please invite. I would I love to hear social workers talk about that kind of stuff. I got you covered. All right. So how do we, what the question was, how do we describe the solution? Is that what you kind of said? Mm -hmm. It's not that simple, but.
0: (laughs) Nothing we do is simple.
1: All right. Um, But I think government needs to make decisions with communities, not for communities. Federal, and local governments—I think they need to be obviously held accountable. We ha- right now we're at this point um, where we can utilize our vote, right? Get- getting out there and voting. Um, if somebody is not is pr- made promises and didn't you know comply with them, now is your time to let them know how you really feel. But beyond that, I think it's whether it's constituent oversight. Um, we have a lot of committees right now. Um, Uh, We've had a lot of black and brown bodies die at the hands of police here locally in Phoenix, and I know that's happening um, Globally right now, Um, but with the creation of an oversight We need voting power those folks those community members need to be able to vote um, And have power within those circles not just be like you said a representative And could you please wear your most ethnic wearing clothes to this meeting because we will have cameras there like that's not what they need And if if they don't have voting power, none of this matters. Um, And I think we need to move beyond advocating for a seat at the table. I'll be honest, like that, when people say that, I cringe. I'm like, no, don't say that. (laughs) What we really need to be saying is they need voting power. Um, So, like, if we think back on the light rail expansion in South Phoenix, um, residents asked to play an active role in the planning and the oversight of the project, but they were flat out denied. They were like, oh, you can come at 6 p.m. or noon to these meetings and we'll tell you what to do. And we'll tell you how to speak and don't speak too loud because you might be too passionate or might be viewed as being too aggressive when it's, you know, people are talking about their community, it's gonna be passionate, it's gonna be heated, right? Um, So they need some meaningful inclusion. at the inception of these projects um, and it probably in hindsight for the local government would have saved them a lot of money on lawsuits <laughs> ballot measures all that kind of stuff if if you if you engage community and that's not to say that if you do all these things the local government or folks that you're going to get the result you want either right but you had to at least given it um, a try and we have to at least participate in that process as well if we're asking for that right
0: and so I know you mentioned, you know, as researcher, you're always uplifting community first. What role do you play in that solution, right? As we're talking about creating space for others, you know, creating, you know, political mobility. I mean, if we're just making up phrases here, but if you're able to really um, support a group the way that they need it, what role do you play? I mean, you, you have a lot of influence as a, as a doctoral student, you know, you're a fellow, you are from community, there's certain identities that you carry that would assist in this, right?
1: That's such a good question, honestly, I, for a while, when I started my doctoral program, I um, I would go back to community, and, and they would view me differently, like this person with all this knowledge, right, like you were just saying, and it was so hard to say, like, no, I'm Monica. I'm just that girl that loves to join the coalition meetings and is down to like <laughs> protest wherever we're at if it's something I believe in. Um, and that was really hard. That's interesting that you say that because those layers of identity you you come with it like that's what you do as a doctoral student and um, even the DSW folks like we come in, we we returned community with all this knowledge, right? That's the hope um, that I I hope that academics do come back to the community. But I don't, I don't see myself as a leader and I don't lead any, any, anything in South Phoenix, I just want to say that first and foremost. What I try to do is use my academic resources um, to work alongside the South Phoenix community. And when I say that means I could research some history piece for us, our, our meeting, um, or if we need a meeting place and people trust the, the university, because that's the other thing. I represent a university locally that has not had very good ties with local indigenous and um, people of color. Um, they've exploited research um, initiatives for them. And so I'm also coming with that, right? They don't trust me. They don't trust the university. And by that way, they don't trust me. So um, I'm solely interested in working side by side with folks. I do not, yeah, that's what I can do um, as part of the solution, right? Just see what their needs are.
0: I think I want to bring you back to talk more about that and what it really means to work side by side with community and how it, what it means to you know, give up some of the power that you have so that they have power because i think that's an opportunity that we often miss Um, i have an email address that ends in.gov and so my family acknowledges like you work for the government there are certain things that i'm going to say around you or i'm not going to say around you because as far as i'm concerned you work for the feds (laughs) like so it's a real thing when you start looking at your identity and you know the influence that you bring with it the resources that may or may not be available, but also the history. Like I'm, I'm glad you mentioned like the historical piece of universities have not always been kind to black and brown bodies. You know, I I'm currently enrolled at USC. They're going through their whole like DEI process right now. I've got some issues with that, but there's everybody's right? So. <laughs> So it's important that we as practitioners are really thinking about the identities that we bring with us when we go into community, and even to the micro level, you know, when we're interacting with other individuals. Like, who do they see, and who are we representing?
1: Yeah, it's true. And I, you know, you talk about all these universities doing uh, DEI work right now, and it's. Uh, It's tough. It's tough. And I'm sure you've experienced being called to join some of these efforts locally. And um, yeah, some of it's like, you know, I need to really focus on community rather than some performative measures that may not, you know, might hurt me actually. It might put me in danger because I'm really going to tell you how it is. You know, I talked about that border thing that I have. (laughs) It's real and it comes out quite a bit. Um, But
0: I do enjoy being that voice in that space. But it is, it's tiring sometimes too, because, you know, people want your opinion and you're just kind of like, I've given it to you a thousand times. You've heard it before. And you haven't done anything with it.
1: Yeah. Or how I- about, how about when you were that? prior to all this happening you were that sounding board was talking about equity all the time and people would be like oh here he comes again and i would get that in my classes all the time i'm like well if you're not doing it you got a problem and if you're not centering race in your research then what are you doing <laughs> yeah. yeah you know what i mean and i cannot be you know i can't we should you know people of color should not be the only ones driving equity like that's the craziest piece to me we should not be you know the only ones we should our counterparts our white counterparts should feel just as responsible
0: let's wrap up the solution right you know okay. what are some things that others could be doing or better yet not doing when it comes to placemaking
1: hmm. i would like to say that i have hope for for i mean if we're thinking of social workers i have hope i think that we're moving as a profession in a direction i don't know what that is i just feel like we're gonna we're not gonna be the same after this i have you have to be hopeful or else it's all for nothing right um but i like so i was listening to the podcast with um was it Jabri harris yeah yeah so he reminded us that all politics is local and i felt like like his pack and stuff i just was so inspired i loved hearing the the podcast um and i think he really uh gave us a call like um too many times you know, academics or even social workers are told, don't be too political. Um, And I would say the personal is political. And I would say that for many scholars of color, um, especially those that care deeply about their community, our research is personal. So be political, like (laughs) do it, you know? Um, And like Jabri was saying, I think that if you're not involved in the local politics, but yet you're asking for change, then we need to rethink that, right? But yeah, so I think that that being involved and getting involved, whatever that looks like, you don't have to run for office. I know Jabri was really talking about people (laughs) running for office and we need people like that in this world. Honestly, we do. But how do we lift up those folks too? Like, do we do door knocking for those folks? Um, How do we endorse them? How do we get the word out? Um, And so your participation in politics could look a million different ways right now.
0: So Monica, it's been great catching up. I feel like we go back like we we we've known each other for a while how can other people keep up with you and your research what's going on at, down in south phoenix
1: yeah um so i am on twitter <laughs> i always feel we saying that so my hand my twitter handle is at moni m-o-n-i underscore social work um i do have a website it's MoniGutierrez.com. Um, but mostly on Twitter, I like to share my ideas. That's how we met, and I've met amazing social work folks. And I, I, I feel like we have a community. Honestly, on Twitter, it feels weird to say that, but just a lot of people that vibe and and share what they know. Um, yeah, and I feel like I could reach out to anybody in that network and be like, I need this help, or do you know somebody? And you, everybody would respond and come come for the call. So I love that.
0: Me too. No, I feel like. More often now, I'm relying on folks in like that social work Twitter network to say, "Hey, you know, I've been watching you for a while now. Like, you're doing really great things. Can you just come give me 30 minutes of your time?" And people are really excited and eager to have that opportunity because I think in many cases, as social workers, we're constantly going to the next problem, trying to fix the next thing. We don't often take the time to not necessarily celebrate the work, but really, you know, amplify the hard, good work that we're doing.
1: Yeah, and I think that um, for a lot of us, putting ourselves forward is awkward, right? That's not the communities we come from. Um, And so uh, white folks do it all the time. So we should just be like, you know, putting ourselves out there as much as we can um, and making sure, like you're saying, our voice is heard and that social workers have a platform like this for, you know, social workers of color to say, this is what I'm working on um and and even seeing how people might want to join those efforts or be interested but how can we build a collective like i'm not just one person but if someone else is interested in like a doctoral program or a master's level program they should reach out to the you know people and networks and see what that looks like for them um yeah and the ds and i always say the dsw program is so key to the work we do um, because if we don't have practitioners um working in community like that i mean and it's taxing it's so taxing so i always um try to lift up that as much as possible i think too many times we think of doctoral students and just you know um, we don't shout out dsw enough
0: appreciate the shout out
1: yeah honestly yeah we're out here you are you and i've met so many amazing people and when i talk about community they're like i hear you i feel you and i see you and that's those are the most rewarding conversations i have with folks you know um, who are actually in the front lines um, doing it.
0: Oh yeah. Well Monica, it's been great. I appreciate the time. I'm wishing you continued success on your doctoral journey with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, that fellowship program, and also just the future that is to come, especially, you know, with you leading the helm with the work that you're doing.
1: Likewise, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: First I'd just like to thank Monica for joining us on the Equity Matters podcast. Realizing that she's another one of the people on Twitter that I was able to convince and persuade to join me on the podcast. Um, please support her in the work that she's doing. Please visit her website, follow her on Twitter. I think there's a lot to consider when we're talking about placemaking. Next time that you're out in your own community, take a look around and look at your built environment and look at the way things are represented. I recall growing up, Um, hanging out on the east side of Detroit. Anybody that knows me knows that I am a firm west sider, but all of my family lived on the other side of town. And I was able to look at the stark differences on one side of Alter Road and the other side of Alter Road. And so next time you're, you know, out and about when it's safe outside, because there is still a whole pandemic outside, take a look around and just observe the place around you it really didn't even dawn on me that we are celebrating our 20th episode and so for something that started off as an idea at the kitchen table to go from just a few random thoughts that i had that i was able to record to being able to solicit people that i admire and respect 20 episodes i think is a lot and i am ever grateful for anyone who has responded even if you didn't hop on the show you completed the survey you've provided input thank you all i view you all as trusted advisors in the work i mean we've had conversations at this point i actually just got off the phone with someone i follow on twitter and we were just talking about what it means to do the work and doing the work little hint there but i'm ecstatic that we've made it this far and i'm so excited for the things that we've got planned for the next year also please follow us on social media we are on Instagram that is equity matters podcast on Instagram as you all know we post content on a regular basis to really support the podcast support some of the topics that our speakers are talking about just an event that you didn't happen to listen to the entire episode We've got definitions, we've got quotes that we pull out, just different excerpts so that you can stay engaged even if you don't have a chance to listen to the episode. I'm hoping in 2021 we can reveal a few other places that you can stay engaged. But in the meantime, I hope that you all have a great and safe holiday. Whatever you celebrate this season, I hope that you are surrounded by people that you love, people who love you, and that you return in 2021 thinking about the ways that you can make society more equitable. When we start talking about the new normal, that's what I want you all to consider. I want you to think about how you can prove and you can demonstrate that equity matters.